A new era is unraveling before us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series in collaboration with NYU Shack Institute of Real Estate. Tangent unites real estate lovers, technology adopters, and passionate creators in an effort to improve our cities and our built environment. Join us every month to learn how product innovators, academic experts, and real estate leaders are solving our present day challenges. If you're working on a product solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better, and would like your mission featured on our feature segment, feel free to email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Stay curious and always be learning. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. And I'm Shami Weissman. Today on Tangent, we have the pleasure to speak with and learn from Austin Allison, co-founder and CEO of Picasso, a service that creates a more accessible category of second home ownership. This isn't Austin's first PropTech founder rodeo. He previously started DotLoop, a pioneer transaction solution in real estate that got acquired by Zillow, where he later became an executive. Hi, Austin. Where does this podcast find you? Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I live in Napa Valley, where I'm recording from today. Your real estate entrepreneurial journey from residential broker to PropTech founder to Zillow exit to PropTech founder again. You must be passionate and uh, a bit of a masochist in in the best way possible. (laughs) Uh, Tell us how that started and, and how you got where you are. Yeah, you bet. So I am very passionate about real estate. And um, interestingly, I I would say my first unofficial business was when I was seven or eight years old. I built birdhouses and I rode my bike up and down the street and sold them to the neighbors. And, you know, that was the that was the first time I, I was introduced to the concept of building things. And I found it to be really rewarding. And when I was 17 years old, I had saved up Uh, enough money for a down payment on a home and bought my first investment property and that's what really gave me the bug for real estate officially and uh, through that process I saw the real estate agent on the sale make a nice commission check and I thought to myself wow like you know I I could sell real estate so I I turned 18 and uh, immediately applied to get my real estate license and I sold real estate all through college and then went on to law school after undergrad and that's what led to my first company, DotLoop, which was really about streamlining the real estate transaction to make buying or selling a home as easy as buying a book on Amazon. And uh, as you mentioned in the intro, we, we built that business over a period of six or seven years and eventually became part of Zillow, where, where I stayed on as an executive for about four years. And that was a fantastic experience. And two years ago, uh, decided it was time to turn the page to a new chapter. So. Uh, I left Zillow, uh, took about a year off to really be deliberate and, and think about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, that's how we got to Picasso. Nice. For comparison, Austin's Loop raised $14 million Series A in 2012 before Zillow's acquisition in 2015, which had raised a combined $57 million in Series A and B in 2005 and 6. Now, Picasso has raised $75 million Series B plus a $1 billion in debt financing. So congrats on that one, Austin. Um, what I'm curious about is, how is it different being a founder the second time around? Any lessons learned the first time? It's actually quite different um, in a lot of ways. I would say um, one of the big differences is that you have a network, of, a broader network of people that you can partner with right out of the gate. So when mm-hmm. I was building my first company, I was figuring all this out for the first time. You know, like I didn't, 
I didn't know anybody that, that could build software. I didn't know any performance marketers or brand marketers. Like I, I was just a, a college student selling real estate. So I had to go figure it out and, and build all those relationships on my own. Mm -hmm. You know, fast forward seven or eight years, I now had a bunch of really great people that I had, had been fortunate to work with at Dotloop and then at Zillow. And that made it a lot easier when we went to start the next company because we already had a team of people who had been working together for 10 years. So mm -hmm. that, that was a huge difference. Um, I would say a second big difference is around, uh, you just know a lot more, you know, 10 years later after having gone through it one time. Um, and I had, I had gotten to go through it on the periphery a couple of times just by being involved as a board member or advisor to other companies. But the more, the more you see and the more you experience, the more you start to recognize patterns and you mm -hmm. figure out things like, you know, how, how, to, how to understand TAM or uh, how to find product market fit or how to think about customer acquisition costs relative to lifetime value. You know, all these things that, that just come with time become second nature uh, mm -hmm. by the time you're a second time entrepreneur. So those would definitely be the, the top two things that come to mind. If there were a third, I would have to cite, I would say it would be fundraising. When you're raising money for the first time, you're basically just, you know, asking investors to take a leap of faith and buy a lottery ticket. You really, you don't have a track record. Um, once you have a track record, it, it makes it a, a, a safer bet and an easier decision for investors. Um, so I found the fundraising process to be much easier and more efficient the second time around than it was the first. Totally makes sense. And Austin, do you have any any suggestions for people who are potentially thinking about taking a leap and building the first startup that might not have that that experience that you did with with your first? Yeah, absolutely. So suggestion number one is follow your passion. I had a number of mentors early in my life that that would basically tell me, Austin, whatever you do in life, if there's just one thing that you remember, it's to figure out what you love to do, find your passion and just go work on that. And everything else, like, you know, the, the money and business success and all the other stuff, like the sort of the material things on the periphery that people think about in the context of business, all that stuff takes care of itself if you're just pursuing your passion. So that's the most important thing. Like I'm not a believer in starting companies just for the sake of starting companies. I think you should only start companies if you're really passionate about a problem that you want to go solve. So that's definitely advice number one. And, and not everybody should start a company. Like if there's not a problem you should go solve, like you, you shouldn't just start a company. Um, but, but do find work that's really inspiring for you and, and spend your time on that because life's short and why waste it, you know, doing something that you don't love. The second thing that I would mention is just surrounding yourself with great people. And this is cliche, you hear it from, you know, anybody who's had some success in business or life will tell you this, but it's just so true. And it's hard to really appreciate how true it is until you've lived through it. And it starts out as like, just like casual mentors. It, it might be a, you know, a, an, a boss of, of your parents or, you know, a friend of a friend or like you, you never know where, where you might meet these influential people in your lives, but whenever you find yourself surrounded by people you admire, try to learn from them and, and try to surround yourself with more people like that. And it goes from 
your mentors, to your investors, then your co-founders, then your, your, your team members. And it just snowballs from there because if you surround yourself with great people and you're following your passion, I mean, as long as you're willing to work hard, the rest will take care of itself over time. Have you ever wondered why so much of the United States looks and feels like a huge parking lot? Do you want to help develop cities for humans instead of for cars? That is exactly what the cul-de-sac team is bringing to life. Cul-de-sac is the world's first post-car real estate developer and property manager. Cul-de-sac is launching the first car-free neighborhood built from scratch in the US. If you're tired of your commute and consider yourself a first mover in making the world a better place, you will not want to miss out on this game-changing approach to modern community living and high quality of life. Are you interested in bringing cul-de-sac to your city or want to live in cul-de-sac's first car-free city as a remote worker? Please visit cul-de-sac.com. That's C-U-L-D-E-S-A-C.com. Austin, as I mentioned to you, I, I left my, uh, my job working for a developer in New York a couple months ago, and I'm sitting on my seat exploring what I'm doing next, right? And I've been asking myself all these questions around what do I care about? How do I want to spend my everyday? Who do I want to spend it with? And as I'm thinking through pain points specifically in the real estate industry, since naturally this is what I'm passionate about, the second question that I asking myself in terms of what direction I want to go into is uh, whether there's a total addressable market for the problems that I have in my head, right? So uh, even though I, I love what you're saying about the, being passionate about uh, what it is you're solving, plus surrounding yourself with great people, I still keep on going back to that and saying like, but is there enough of a problem out there for it to be worth my time and uh, a group of people's time. So uh, wondering how that's played a role for you on on your previous businesses and maybe during that one year that you took uh, in between in between roles, how, how did you think about that or if, if that's something that was top of mind or not? Yeah, this is a really great question. And TAM is something that was very top of mind through my analysis. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll start just by saying that like the size of the business, you know, in some ways, it's not that important. Like at the end of the day, if you're if you're doing what you love and you're solving a really, you know, meaningful problem, that's more important than anything else. But I think for for many people, like the bigger the challenge, the more rewarding it is. And like mm -hmm. I'm I'm one of those guys. It sounds like you're one of those people where I just I just like to have as big of an impact as possible. So the way to sort of measure that and quantify that in the business world is TAM and my last company, Dotloop, was actually a great example of a business where we achieved significant market share, but had a pretty small TAM. I mean, by the time I left Dotloop, we had like 50 to 60% of all transactions in the US flowing through the software. Wow. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, 50 to 80 billion in transaction volume per month would flow through Dotloop. But yet, we were only a $120 million outcome, which I, I realize $120 million is still a big number, but relative to the amount of market share that we had, it was a very small number, mm -hmm. right? There's other businesses like at Picasso, for example, if we get to 1% market share, Picasso will be tens of billions of dollars in value at less than 1% market share. Whereas we got to 50% market share at Dotloop and we were, you know, just over a hundred million. So 
that's purely a function of TAM. There just aren't that many people, or there's just not that many dollars through, flowing through real estate productivity software, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the US, whereas there are a lot of dollars flowing through the second home industry, which is the one that we're in now. So I do think it's important to, to understand TAM. And if you're motivated by and find a lot of energy in this idea of like the bigger the problem, the bigger the challenge, the, the more rewarding it is, then I think it's important to, to think about TAM. Fascinating. And just, I mean, it was mentioned before, but TAM is a total addressable market for those out there. Um, and this gives us a great segue to jump into your uh, current venture, Picasso, uh, which I highly doubt it's a coincidence that sounds like Picasso the painter. Uh, if I read correctly somewhere out there, uh, people now will be able to claim they own a Picasso uh, and right. sound even cooler. <laughs> um, so yes, Picasso. What is Picasso, Austin? Uh, how did it come to be? Tell us more about it. Yeah, you bet. So the mission of the company is really about enriching people's lives by making second home ownership possible and enjoyable for more people. And, and before I get into the specifics of how Picasso works, I just want to rewind seven years or so and, and, and give you the origin story of the company. So sure. back in 2013, my wife and I became second homeowners in Lake Tahoe. And prior to that moment, we were like most families who always dreamed about owning a second home but could never afford it. But we kind of put all of our savings together, which was enough for a down payment on a home. We bought this property and we had to rent the home out on Airbnb to pay for the mortgage. And that second home fundamentally changed our lives. We became part of the community. We met some of our closest friends in Tahoe. We developed all these rituals around restaurants that we frequent and mountain bike trails that we, we ride down. Like it, it was a complete unlock in terms of the, the life that we were living and it was all made possible through that second home. But I realized through that experience that second homes are very expensive and they're highly underutilized. Most second homes are only used five to six weeks a year on average. So for the last seven or eight years, I've been trying to find a way and, and thinking about a way to make this second home ownership dream possible for more people. So we came up with this, con well, we actually didn't invent the concept. The concept has been around for years. It's just really hard to do on your own. And the concept is called co-ownership, which basically means a small group of families own a house together. So like imagine if Shami, Edward and I, the three of us, decided that we wanted to buy a house in Miami. You know, we could go do this on our own. We'd form an LLC, we'd buy the property, we'd have a little operating agreement that defines the kind of the rules of ownership. Um, that's what Picasso does. We just handle all the details. We, hand, we provide financing, we organize the group of co-owners, we have a really innovative software tool that enables everybody to share access to the calendar. And the benefit to the consumer is it enables you to buy a beautiful luxury home for one eighth of the cost that it would cost you to buy the whole thing. Fascinating. Uh, I mean, I think the, mo uh, the, way, the way I see it, democratizing access to That's second right. home ownership. I mean, this, this comes across as a, as a multi-dimensional innovation from, a, you know, from the way you acquire a second home to the way you manage it to the legal. And I think very underratedly, uh, the governance point of mm -hmm. view of it and how you really organize the different owners. Just for a bit of context, uh, according to some of Picasso data, uh, there's nearly 10 million second homes that sit unoccupied uh, for 10 to 11 months a year just in the US. 
That's about 7% of total housing units in the US. We have around 140 million housing units. So 7% of them are sitting unoccupied. And there's 100 million second homes around the world. So that's, that's a lot of, like you were saying, just 1% of that market uh, would, be, would be a massive company, uh, Picasso. I mean, not, and last but not least, 75% uh, of people that make over $150,000 uh, are aspired to own a second home. And 80% of them don't want a timeshare, which is right. the anti-Picasso, if you will, or the old school way of, of Picassoing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. So the timeshare question, since you brought it up, this is, this is quite different than, than a timeshare in a couple of ways. Like, first off, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges because one is like a big commercial hotel resort with hundreds of rooms and tens of thousands of, of guests. Like, if you buy into the Marriott Vacation Club, for example, you're one of literally tens of thousands of people that are buying into that program. Whereas this is simply a, a residential home. Like it's just a small group of people that are owning a house together. So it's like a big commercial use versus a kind of a small private residential use. But the second big difference is that, that this is real ownership. You're buying real estate, you're not buying time. And right. a, a, a test that I like to use with that, like, you know, one of the things that, and, and I'm not hating on timeshares. Like I think, <laughs> I think there's, a, there's a market for timeshares. There's a lot of people that buy them um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good product for the right person. But one of the things you'll hear from people who have bought timeshares in the past is like, they just can't get out. You know, they, they get mm. sold the, on this, this concept over Mai Tais and margaritas and, you know, some exotic place and, and they buy into this thing and then they realize that they can't get out of it because there's like, there's no way to resell it. And, and it's all under the control of this big organization. Like right. with Picasso, it's just real estate. Like even if our company were to completely go out of business, all you would do is you, you would own a house with a small group of people and you could go find another property manager to run the home or you could sell the home outright. So it's a right. very, very different product. But um, yeah, the, that question you know comes up from time to time. No, it's what people are familiar with, but also in this case, you also get the, the, the upside of, of you know, the home appreciating in value. So, so you That's also right. get that, which you don't in, in the timeshare. With that said, though, if uh, if if the market actually uh, depreciates right in value, then 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 you also have that risk, right? But Austin, in, in any case, what I what I would love to hear about a little bit more is how does this business model work? If it's me, Shami, and I would love to have a second home in Aspen, Colorado, right? How would I go about it? I go on the Picasso website, and and what happens? So on your earlier point, before I get into that, you're absolutely right. You own real estate. So if it goes up in value, that's your benefit. If it goes down in value, that's your loss. I mean, same, mm -hmm. same as if you, you owned a whole home. Um, in terms of how it works, though, you go to our website, which is PACASO.com. So we were inspired by the artist Picasso, but we spelled ours a bit differently. Mm -hmm. And you'll see a bunch of beautiful homes all over the country. And from there, you can just buy however much of the home you want within reason. You can buy as little as 12.5% of the home or one eighth, or as much as 50% of the home or four eighths. So the reason why we cap it at 50% is if you're buying more than 50% of the home, we recommend that you just go buy the whole thing because at that point in time, the, the trade-off around you know sharing access to the calendar uh, doesn't really justify the, the cost savings. Um, but below 
you know this is a great solution. So you find the home that you love, you, you decide how much you want to buy, and you know, 15 minutes later, you're an owner of the home. And then you get access to a, an owner's app, and the owner's app has a, a scheduling feature, and we've invented a really cool technology called SmartStay, which enables the owners to share access to the calendar in a fair and equitable way. So at the end of the day, what ends up happening through SmartStay is everybody gets a little bit of all the times throughout the year. You're gonna get some holidays, some peak season, some non-peak season. No one person is able to dominate or squat on, on all the best dates. It's just shared mm -hmm. equitably across all the owners throughout the year. And then if you ever wanna sell your Picasso, that's easy too. You, it works pretty much just like a normal real estate transaction with, with a couple of exceptions. One exception is we require everybody to hold their uh, Picasso for one year. And the reason why we've added that into the operating agreement is because we don't want people buying these houses as like speculative investments. We don't want people buying them and trading them. This is not an investment. This is a, like we don't position this as an investment. It's, it's for people who want to own and occupy and use their own second home. So there is a one year requirement to hold. Um, other than that, though, the only other difference is that there's a right of first refusal for the other owners in the ownership group. So let's say you buy your share in Aspen for a million dollars because prices in Aspen are insane. Um, and, and then you, you decide that a year later you want to sell it for 1.2 million. All you do is, you know, tell Picasso you want to sell. We notify the other owners and they have a first right to buy your, your interest for 1.2 million. And if they don't exercise that right, it then just gets listed and we find a new buyer. And, it, and we list with local real estate agents, it syndicates through the MLS, just like a normal home, and it also publishes to Picasso.com. Got it. So am I understanding correctly, if, if, if I'm able to pretty much automatically purchase a share of a home on the website directly, does that mean that Picasso has purchased the home previously? So everything that you've listed, you actually are holding on balance sheet? Yes and no, meaning yes, a lot of the homes that are listed. So anything that's called an active Picasso is a home that we own, but we also uh, feature other homes that we'd like to own or that our owners that we serve would like to own. And we call those prospects. So if you go onto our website, there's sort of two categories of listings. And once um, we see enough interest from our owners or our, our buyers, I guess is a better way to say it, we then go get the home under contract and then we aggregate the group of co-owners and then we once the group of co-owners is fully aggregated they own 100 percent of the home so sometimes that might be four people that own the house together other times it could be eight it all depends on how much of the home each person buys but i would say on average a typical home has about six owners because you'll have mm -hmm. four people that'll buy an eighth and two people that'll buy a quarter but once the home is fully sold Picasso retains no ownership. We're effectively like a, we're basically like a property manager at that point. We just specialize in managing the co-ownership process. Understood. So what are the recurring fees uh, that Picasso is charging, right? Like how, how, are you, how are you generating income in this business? Yeah, so we, we make money in, in two ways. We have a service fee that happens up front and that's a one-time fee and it's baked into the price of the home. So. Let's say that you know our average right now is between three and four million dollars for the whole home price. So uh, of that, let's let's say it's a you know three and a half million dollar home. 
we would add 12% to that three and a half million to get to you know, 3.9 million. And then we would divide that number by eight to calculate the share price. So that, that initial 12%, which works out mathematically to about a 10.5% margin, is how we make money up front. From there, we do charge a recurring fee to manage the process and to provide access to our, our services and our technology. And that's just $99 per month. All the other costs are not Picasso costs. They're, they're just costs that are customary with owning a second home. So things like you know, taxes, insurance, lo- mowing the lawn, you know, cleaning the home, all those things are just pass-through costs that Picasso does not you know, mark up. Got it. And one more thing that I that I was really interested in is understanding your your financing structure, right? So I saw that that you guys were able to secure a billion dollar financing package, right? So how does that work uh, in terms of these these transactions that you're speaking about? And if I'm Shami, the buyer of an eighth of an of an ownership in my Aspen uh, Picasso home, can I finance that that acquisition with with a mortgage? Yes, you can but it's all integrated into Picasso. So you can't just go out and call like, you know, a random bank to get a loan on this. It's, it's all Mm -hmm. integrated into, into our experience and it's great financing. It's 70% loan to value, which is very competitive for a second home and three and a half percent interest. Um, so it's, you know, very good financing for, for, uh, this type of product. So what that means to the consumer is, you know, like let's say a $4 million house, for example, if you were buying a $4 million home outright, you would be required to put at least a million dollars down, right? Because uh, most banks require 25 to 30% down on a second home. And then it would cost you probably, you know, 15 to 20 grand a month to own a $4 million home. With Picasso, you can co-own that same $4 million home for just over 150,000 down because you only have to put 30, 30% down on the cost of one eighth the home. And instead of paying that 15 to 20 grand a month, you would only have to pay one eighth of that because the other costs are shared with the co-owners. So it's radically right. less expensive than, than the second best alternative of buying a whole home. And it, it really empowers people to sort of supercharge their buying power, if you will. Like there's a lot of people, I mean, Aspen's a great example. I mean. Aspen has got to be, I don't know the exact stat, but it's got to be one of, one of the most expensive markets in the world. I mean, it is, it is so expensive. Like homes start at like eight to $10 million in Aspen right now. It's just absolutely insane. So yeah. there, are, there aren't a lot of people that can, can afford, you know, $8 million homes, especially not $8 million second homes, which is what markets like Aspen are uh, comprised mostly of. Um, but with Picasso, it's a lot more accessible. I mean, you could buy a million dollar share for 300 grand down, uh, which puts you in an $8 million home in Aspen. And there's a lot more people who have 300,000 down than people that have the means to buy an $8 million second home. Super interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some of the hardest markets last year for, you know, people relocating from coastal cities are, are Aspen, West Palm Beach, Lake Tahoe, Park City, which I noticed are some of your markets. Some other interesting stats about Picasso. I mean, you achieved, according to crunch-based data, uh, you achieved unicorn status faster than any other company in less than a year, while also making the entourage uh, dream of, of sharing a home with your friends or, or sharing a, a second uh, home 
Uh, I think it's it's uh, fascinating. Uh, do you think Picasso will be able to reach uh, beyond this uh, price point of homes to, uh, let's say, a second tier of, of second homes that are more accessible to, to more uh, of the population? Absolutely. But the, the way that we will do that is by entering more affordable markets. So right. like right now we're operating in the pretty much the top second home destinations around the US um, and, and soon to be around the world. And they tend to have very high home prices. Like in, in some of these markets, I mean, you know, median prices are, are one to $2 million, meaning that's mm -hmm. like, that's like the, the entry point for somebody in the market. So these are very, very expensive markets. But when we start to get into markets that are, what I would describe as like that, that second tier of second home destinations, locations that are regionally relevant, but not necessarily nationally known where home prices are more affordable, that's where, mm -hmm. where our share prices will start to come down. So like, for example, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and there's two lakes that everybody would go to in Cincinnati. One's called Lake Norris and the other is called Lake Cumberland. And you could buy an, an amazing home on one of those lakes for $500,000. So mm -hmm. you start to do the math on that, you know, half a million dollars, and then you add furniture and, and our service fee and divide by eight. I mean, we're going to get to a point where you can have share prices that are $75,000. And with 30% down, you're talking about a $20,000 down payment on a second home. So absolutely, that's, that's where we're headed. Um, but the way that we do it is by, by going to more affordable markets. Housing insecurity is a complex, lived reality for hundreds of thousands of low-income New Yorkers that has only been exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis. That's why the Supportive Housing Network of New York represents over 200 nonprofit members in their collective effort to end homelessness among the most vulnerable in our communities. Working with the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, they ensured supportive housing's quality and proliferation through advocacy, policy analysis, training, technical assistance, and public education. Thanks in part to the network's effort for the past 30 years, New York is now home to over 52,000 units of supportive housing. To learn more about their incredible mission and how to get involved, visit supportivehousingnetworknewyork.org. That's S-H-N-N-Y.org. We need our brightest and experienced minds solving, you know, these big issues we face around housing. And I mean, you've been around specifically residential, you know, throughout most of your professional life, uh, including bird residences and human residences. Uh, so, you know, there's there's just so many ways we can tackle this. Uh, real estate, you know, involves public, private entities. Um, so, yeah, what are some of the biggest obstacles holding us back? I would say the, the biggest obstacle is around supply and the, and the lack of supply. And just to, to break this down really simply, I mean, all markets, including real estate markets, are, are, are just math. It's what, what's happening in the market is a function of the balance between supply and demand. Anytime you have a shortage of supply and an abundance of demand, prices go up. And when the opposite of that happens, prices go down. And we're now in a situation in a lot of markets, in, in pretty much every second home market, where the balance has gotten so out of whack that prices are, are climbing at unprecedented rates. And it's making it near impossible for like 
local, the local workforce to afford to live in many of these places. You know, that, that like, we got to do something about that. And, and the, really the only way that I can think about solving that problem is on the supply side. And the reason why is demand goes where demand's going to go. Like, if people want to live in Austin, Texas, or Miami, or Napa Valley, like, you know, that's where people want to go, right? And, and so the demand is there and the work from anywhere phenomenon has empowered more people with the flexibility to, to buy primary or secondary homes in these locations. So you, you, there's really not a, not a way to soften the demand. Like that's just the, the market doing what it does. But on the supply side, there's only two real ways to go about it, which is building new inventory or making better use of existing inventory or a combination thereof. So I'm most interested in solutions that tackle that problem. And I think, you know, everybody that's part of this industry, I think we have a collective responsibility to be open-minded and embrace change and lean in to some of these solutions to make a difference. And that's that's one of the things that companies have the power to do and is is influence, right? That like the more scale you get, the more marketing reach you have, you have the ability to leverage that for good, you know, to further movements that make the world a better place. And I think a couple of innovations that that I've been watching for for years now on this front, you know, one is ADUs. So an ADU is is effect, effectively taking an empty yard and it's it's turning it into housing, right? Because we're we're now empowering somebody to put a housing unit on a, on a on a yard and and that's adding more supply to alleviate, you know, some of the pressure. Co-ownership is the equivalent of that for existing homes. We're taking these homes that are otherwise sitting empty and we're empowering more families to use those homes as second homes, which is alleviating some of the pressure. I think on the on the new construction front, there's a lot of modular home construction, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and sustainable housing solutions that are coming to market. And, you know, the number of them is endless, but there's a lot of really great stuff happening there. And I think we just need to continue to embrace it. And um, and, and I think over time, some of the stuff will become more mainstream and, and help us to sort of chip away at, at the supply shortage problem that we're faced with. Absolutely. And just to clarify there, ADU, accessory dwelling unit, which I think is a clever uh, innovation, if you will, where people install these uh, accessory dwelling units in their backyards and provide housing. But uh, I think it's, it's like trying to cover the sun with a finger, this type of solution. You know, it's better than nothing. Uh, but I, I've seen it as well picking up. And in terms of modular construction, I'm a big believer on, on you know, trying to shorten uh, any process, uh, the construction or any, uh, you know, permitting process or just, you know, actually building structures and, and modular. Uh, you know, it's been around for over a century now. I think the quality is getting there of, of some of the products out there. Uh, you know, full stack modular based out of Brooklyn comes to mind. And uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Elon Musk is uh, claiming, I don't know if true or just as a marketing stunt that he's living in a $50,000 uh, modular home in Austin, uh, you know, looks like a nice small studio. You you don't need more than that if you're a, if you're a simple man like Elon. <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we're entering our last stages of our conversation. Austin, it's been fascinating. Uh, in in one of your previous conversations, and you just touched on this a bit. Uh, in one of your previous conversations with your co-founder and also former Zillow ex executive uh, Spencer Raskoff, you speak about embracing change uh, as a prop tech leader. You know, tell us more and how, how we can spread this around to inspire more entrepreneurs, companies and cities 
to do the same. There's a bunch of famous quotes that I could cite on this front, but but one that comes <laughs> to mind is a is a Steve Jobs quote, and I'm just going to paraphrase it because I'm not looking at the terminology in front of me. But the gist of what he says is is that um, you know we're, we are we all sort of grow up being conditioned to believe that the world is the way that it is, that we're just supposed to operate within these guardrails and like head you know straight straight down the middle of the fairway. But it, it turns out that that's not actually the way that the world works. The way that the world works is it's not, it's not fixed. It's not, you know, like, like it can be changed. You can poke the world and it'll, it'll give you a little something back, meaning we can make a difference. All, all you have to believe is, it, or you really just have to, to believe that that is true. And um, what it means, practically speaking, is that you know, we need to embrace change because change is an uncomfortable thing for most people. Like, I, I find that, you know, like myself and, and most humans I know tend to be creatures of habit on some level. We're just like more comfortable in a zone where things aren't changing. But if we actually embrace the change, if we embrace that discomfort and recognize it not as a bad thing, but as a sign of progress, a lot of really good stuff comes out of the other side of that. So like, you know, I, I think all of us just have to, to realize that we have a bunch of problems in front of us as an industry. And there's a whole lot of opportunities, you know, sitting right here in front of us that we can sort of embrace and, and latch onto and, and sort of promote uh, to make the world a better place and, and try to address some of this housing crisis that we're finding ourselves in. But you, you just got to believe that change is 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 good and a and a productive part of the you know the the innovation process. Amen. I mean, if if we don't if we don't pursue change for the better, you know, change will come to us in the form of a pandemic or a war, uh, knocking on wood. But anyway, Austin, I think you know you you wrapped it up super nicely there, and even anticipated the last question. So I think it's been great to have you on. Uh, last but not least, where can our listeners find you uh, and learn more about Picasso? Yeah, so you can find us at Picasso.com. Again, that's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. I would encourage everybody to download our app. We have a bunch of really amazing houses and you can, you know, favorite and like homes and be updated on new listings that come online. Uh, you can find me personally on, on Twitter or Instagram at G Austin Allison uh, is, is my handle. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you both, Edward and Shami, for the opportunity to be here. Thanks for what you do with Tangent. Uh, it's really an honor. Austin Allison, co-founder and CEO of Picasso. Thank you once again for joining us on Tangent. Super interesting learning from you and about the present and future of PropTech. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This episode was produced by Edward Cohen and Shami Wiseman. If you like what you heard, please share Tangent with a friend. Special thanks to Sam Shandon and everyone at NYU Shack. Tangent's artwork was designed by Michael Lowy. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower as a species, so stay curious and always be learning.